What's up guys, welcome back to another episode of the Dream Chasing 101 podcast. Today we are joined by an LPGA, LET and Sunshine Ladies Tour player, Ashley Buhai. And I'll leave it up to Ashley just to, you know, familiarize uh, the audience with who she is and what she does. So go for it, Ash. Hey guys, uh, really good to be on the podcast. Um, at the moment I'm in Florida, uh, Palm Beach Gardens to be exact. Uh, be playing been professional now for 13 years um started on the ladies european tour um worked my way through the ranks now been playing on the lpj full-time for the past six years and looking forward to my seventh season in 2021 and ash before we dive deeper into you know your career uh, a question we like to ask on the podcast is what did you want to be growing up i know you you've had a golf club in in your hands from a very young age but you know, did um, you ever think you'd be doing something else and, you know, kind of take us through that journey of the younger Ash, even though she was kind of dominating from <laughs> quite a young age already? Uh, no, I was telling my parents, you know, I think around the age of eight to nine that I wanted to be a professional golfer. So um, I started hitting balls when I was three, playing properly at six and just had this drive in me. Um, a good story is my grade two teacher called my parents in, um, said, you know, Ash isn't, you know, doing what she needs to her school and all this. And my dad said to me and, you know, gave me a bit of a lecture. Well, why, why are you good at hockey? Why are you good at cricket? All of this. Why are you good at golf? Well, cause I practice. She says, well, you need to do the same thing. <laughs> you need to practice your schoolwork. And my answer to that was. Well, all I want to do is play golf and I want to be a professional golfer. So why must I practice that stuff? Well, not the oh. answer you want to hear, but obviously show the determination from a really young age. And I think at least you've backed it up. <laughs> yeah, thank you goodness. <laughs> it also shows that all my parents are hard work and, yeah. um, you know, what they all their support didn't go, for, go to nothing. <laughs> and, you know, there's often a, you know, when you talk to um elite athletes there's often a period in time where it all clicked and i mean you were saying that in grade two already but was there a moment in your fairly successful i mean your amateur career is like outrageous to be honest but was there a moment where it all clicked and you you just knew from then like this is definitely going to be my future um I don't know if there was a moment, I think there was milestones throughout my amateur career that, you know, made me believe I'm on the right stepping, I'm on the right course to doing this, you know. It started from winning the first the Ladies Club Champs at Royal Johannesburg Kensington at the age of, I think I was 11 or 12 the first time I won it. Um, you know, and it was ticking that box, those boxes and then, you know, winning the SA Women's Open at the age of 14, I didn't dream of that stuff. Um, and when it happened, it was still like, okay, this happened, it's cool. But yeah. my focus was still, I wanted to be the best amateur and tick those goals. And, you know, when I set the goals of winning the, the SA amateur, I wanted to be the youngest to win the, the stroke play, then the youngest to win the match play, then the double, and then be the only person to to follow it up and defend. Um, so I think it was, you know, just stepping stones that reassured me, well, you're on the right path and... And then winning a junior tournament in the States was big, proving I could win away from South Africa. I uh, won the Rolex Junior uh, Championship, which is 
very big tournament here in the States. Um, so that, that was really big for me. And then, you know, finally turning pro and, and having accomplished everything I wanted to at a amateur level, winning three weeks after turning pro. So, you know, I had a really good ride, but as everything does, it ebbs and flows. And you learn that out as you get older and the journey goes on. And you, you mentioned, you know, all these milestones. Did you, I know your father played a massive role in, you know, the golfer you've become and your golf journey, but did you have any female um, kind of golf role models? Because often when you talk to a lot of female athletes now, because, you know, w- women's sports um, back then obviously wasn't as big as it is right now. So it was difficult to find that role model. Um, can you maybe tell us if you've, you know, found bit of inspiration from some of the pros back then or if it was from a potentially a male golfer well like you said back then we didn't get any women's professional golf coverage um, yeah it's only what you read and what my dad told me about so obviously Annika it was the time when Annika was dominating so she was always what I looked up to and then um you know I got to meet her. I went and I played in her tournament. It was an LET event. I got an invite as an amateur when I was 16 or 17, and I met her for the first time, and that was really cool, meeting your idol. But yeah. it was always the South African guys, you know, Ernie, Retief, um, you know, Trevor was a little later. Um, you know, Johan Immelman helped me and was my dad in terms of stepping stones and what to do and because um, he'd been through it with Trevor already and gave my dad advice and how to get me into tournaments in the States and um you know so it's all those guys i looked up to and but ernie's always been my idol yeah yeah ernie's obviously ultimate idol i'd say <laughs> and i mean you've got the the nice smooth swing as well so some characteristics <laughs> have carried through um did you um especially being a golfer and being a fan of golf obviously um did you ever attend any uh live events that kind of you know still have a place in your memory that you know this was amazing to watch whether it be like the SA Open or you know one mm-hmm. of these bigger events can you maybe take us through you know one of your memorable live um, fan moments yeah um, well one of my first ones I remember it was the it was about the 97 or 98 SA Open at Glendower VJ Singh won that year and Gavin Levinson who was my first coach he is a family friend so he let me come onto the range and um it was late afternoon and there were a few guys on the range and he let me hit some balls. Okay. And it was quite cool. Um, I remember Fulton Allen being there. Uh, VJ was hitting it obviously over everything, over Glendower's yeah. range. Um, and then that I had a life-size poster of Ernie and he signed it for me that week. Um, another one, my dad took me through what used to be the, it was a Nelson Mandela that was played at Pekinwood back then. Retief was playing um i got to be up and close with him he signed a glove and a and a hat for me um so much so that i went to bed that night and fell asleep with a hat on my head and my parents walked into the room <laughs> you know it's it's all stuff that we do as kids and we dream about yeah. to meet in our idols and one thing that has been cool since kind of getting stuck in the states now and making it more permanent in the last two months um I've played with Ernie twice and got to spend quite a bit of time with him and rub, rubbing shoulders with your idol. It's, it, it never gets old. I still get goosebumps in a way. Yeah, I was going to ask, you know, do, does it ever get old? Because now that you're never, at this no. level, okay. 
No. And we were playing with him and you're still trying to learn, you know, his short yeah. game, his, his chipping is unbelievable. Like, he he was in a bunker and uh, what did I do? I rang up to the side of the bunker or tried to make <laughs> it not look obvious to watch him hit it because obviously we all know he's got hands like a magician out of bunkers. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's been cool. I've played a bit with Brandon Grace, Eric Van Royen, um, and I think playing with, you know, better players is only going to going to help me hopefully and what I need for the next step. Yeah, I think it's also nice to see this um, kind of camaraderie and you see it mm. and it's well kind of talked about as well when our players go overseas that we kind of stick together because it can be quite a daunting experience. You know, it's not familiar territory for many of our players, especially if you spend most of your time growing up here and you maybe didn't go and study in the States or whatnot. Yeah, um, definitely. We like to stick together. Got to keep the braai tradition have a braai. going. <laughs> um, you know, we, we mentioned your amateur career. You've had a few, like, groundbreaking wins. You know, you've won the South African Open as Ami. Um, those are like, like you mentioned, you don't really um, kind of dream of those things. Well, you dream of it, but like for it to come true is is another thing to deal with. How did you kind of keep your feet on the ground you know, winning SA, SA Open as an AMI. And then how do you, you know, when you make that transition from amateur to pro, how did you kind of cope with all of the, the success you've had? Because it's difficult to kind of, you know, you, you, your only way is up. You know, that's the way you're thinking. Yeah. Well, I think the first step is you have to surround yourself with the right people. Um, you know, people that are going to keep you grounded and humble. And that's one thing my parents made sure of. Um, you know, never let me get big head, always stay humble, was my dad's thing. Uh, I said my first coach was Gavin Levinson. Um, you know, he was very monumental in my in my amateur career. Um, he obviously played at a high level himself in Europe and won a lot as an amateur, South African and amateur. Um, and it's, I think it was, you know, what my parents did well in terms of still letting me, although I was a so-called phenom and teenage phenom yeah. on the rise, still try to let me be as much of a teenager in a way as I could you know still made sure I went to school there was the option of homeschooling my dad says not a chance is that happening he says because you still need to be able to be with friends have social skills it's like I don't care if you go sit in class and daydream but you got to be around and know that this is how life really is so you know I think that was very important and I think they did a very good job of that um but it was difficult like I was you know, I missed out on a lot, uh, but I wouldn't change it. You know, you miss out on friends' birthday parties when you're 16 years old. It seems the biggest thing in the world, you know, and um, so in certain holidays. But I was so driven to achieve this goal of being a professional golfer that it didn't bother me that much. Um, so it was just about, you know, that's all I wanted to do. And I was willing to make the sacrifices to do it. And... You know, from the time you've turned pro, there's been quite a big shift in the way the game is, you know, has been played. Um, more notably on the men's side because it's, you know, mm -hmm. they get more coverage. But for, for, from your perspective, you know, if you look back when you just turned pro and you look currently now, what kind of changes have you seen in the game itself? I know now there's a lot of talk about, you know, the ball being rolled back in, you know, because the ball's going too far. That's the claim. Um, and the club technology, you know, what, what changes have you seen and, you know, have you kind of 
seen the the benefits of it in a sense sure there's definitely been benefits equipment has changed and it, and it's helped but i think women's golf is still very different i feel women's golf is almost played like it was meant to be played back you know in the necklace player era because that's how long we almost play courses now um we don't we don't overpower and able to get up to par fives. If there's maybe 20 players in a field every week that can get up to par fives, that's a lot out of 144 players. So I feel we still, we play more of an old school game, you know, strategy. You can't overpower it. You got to hit it to this point, hit it to A, hit it to B, try get it in the hole. Um, very much focused around wedge play. Um, that's what you got to do. And, you know, 15 feet and in. So I think we look at the game a little different. I mean, yes, I definitely hit it further now than when I did um, 13 years ago. But, you know, at the same time, this whole technology thing is it's such a small percentage that has advantage of it. So, yes, we watch in TV and the men are overpowering PGA and European tour guys are overpowering the golf course. But I feel if you go and you take that technology away from your average golfer, they're not going to enjoy golf anymore. Yeah. It's going to be um, a different game for You know, us. they go out there, they go out there to enjoy their Saturday and Sundays and have fun with their friends and it's made their lives a lot easier. Yeah. So, I don't see how they're going to be able to do it and I also don't know if it's going to be possible in, in a way. Um and they need to look at it such a small percentage and people actually love seeing these guys hit the ball far and that they're there to entertain and that's what they do. Um, whereas the LPGA, we, we play more strategic and I know that when we play programs and people play with us, they enjoy it more because they can see you don't have to swing at 120 miles an hour to get the ball out there. It's about finesse. It's about timing. And they actually tend to learn a lot more from us. Yeah. I think that's important to note that there is that like difference in the way, I mean, there are a few, um, LPGA golfers who are kind of um picking up some speed you know yeah but, yeah, we all but majority somehow. yeah but the majority i mean the way the the game is played like you mentioned is a different completely different way how, how do you feel about um i don't know if you saw uh the pga championships going to be allowing range finders yeah for you as a pro do you, do you think that's going to speed up or do you think that's going to just no. make it make it slower i don't think it's going to speed it up at all um you know, also with my husband being a caddy, uh, we've got two two takes on it as a player yeah. and, you know, as somebody who caddies. And I think, I don't think it's going to speed it up because A, you're still going to do your numbers. You're still going to want your front, your pin, your left, your yeah. right. Um, you're going to discuss it. And I feel there should be some element in a way that you need to make sure you're on your game so you don't mess up, you know. And also caddies... The caddies out there that go the extra mile every week for their players to make sure their homework's done, that they have that extra information when they need it. And it's also going to take away from the guys that go the extra mile and do their job well, that girls and players, I mean, I don't think it's going to happen much, but you can just get a local caddy for the week. And in a way, you're taking a job opportunity away. And we're professionals, you know, we're out there, we've got fantastic, we've got yardage books, we've got green books. The, I mean, the yardage books are so good nowadays. Um, I really don't see see the need for a rangefinder in our game. 
Yeah, I've uh, carried a few times on the Sunshine Tour and I've mm. uh, had a few mishaps with, <laughs> with the yeah. numbers. So, yeah, I definitely <laughs> also, need you know, to... It's different when I think we're talking about this, you're playing on the feeder tours where books mm. aren't as good. Yeah. Um, you're pulling your own bag because you're trying to cut expenses. I think on those sort of tours, it's great. Have it. But once you get to the PGA, LPGA, the European tour... You know, we're doing well. You're able to afford your Yardish book every... We don't even actually have to pay for it. <laughs> the tour give them to us. The caddies have to pay for their books. And they're so good. Um, I mean, they have pictures and show you where you got to hit it off a tee, mm. lines. Um, it's it's very self-explanatory. And it's very... I just don't think Yardish uh, rangefinders should be necessary in a professional game. Yeah, I think, yeah, like you mentioned, for the, the tours where, for instance, the prize money is not as high and players are trying to cut expenses and that you are allowed to pull your own bag, I think you, totally. you should be able... Then it will that, speed it up for sure. 100%, because now, you, I mean, that player is doing a caddy's job as well, having to pace out yardage, try and think to herself or, you know, himself, kind of, what, what should I do? So I think definitely on it's kind of like amateur golf. Um, exactly. If if amateur golf was if we didn't have rangefinders it would be painful, um, but yeah, it's there's a there's been a few kind of um, opinions out there, but the general thing is pros always look for the cover number, you know there's so many other numbers you 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 players are looking for. We we very seldom play the pin to be honest. Hundred <laughs> percent, exactly. So, uh, actually flying and hitting the pin is almost irrelevant in professional golf sometimes unless it's super soft conditions and you know you can just fire it then it's irrelevant but it's very seldom that we play courses like that and you know when we go into your early days as pro you know can you think about uh some of the areas of your game that or not areas of your game but did you ever see yourself struggling in certain aspects and you know how did you kind of improve from those early days if you look at where you are right now um well, I don't think with the way my amateur career have been, um, you know, I won so much. I said I turned pro I won three weeks later. I was like, life's yeah. going to be good. It's going to be like this forever. <laughs> um, you know, and then this game has a way of biting you in the butt. Um, and you're going to have to figure it out and you're going to have to grind it out and dig deep. And that's when you really realize, is this what you want to do or is yeah. it not? I luckily never had to question that, but I've had many friends that started out with me and are no longer playing anymore, you know, so, um, you know, there's been times where I've had to grind it out, you know, I, I played, like I said, for me, my first real failure that I felt was my first LPGAQ school, uh, that year there were 17 cards, um, you know, you're 150 odd players in a field for 17 spots. It's tough. Yeah. Five days. I was in it the whole the whole week. I was within that top 17. Uh, finished bogey bogey. I missed my card by one. You know, and as an 18 year old, it was. I mean, for me, it was like heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Yeah. I was. I mean, I was devastated at all I'd work for. Obviously, there was so much hype on me. First, being the first one from South Africa in so long to even have a chance of getting an LPJ to a card. So that was kind of my first, you know, glimpse of it. And then my rookie year was difficult. Um, having a conditional card, 
living in South Africa, you know, only two weeks before the tournament you're in, flying to America, tear up. It's all new. I'm 18. I can't rent a car. I've got a guy caring for me. He was a good friend. He was like an older brother to me, um, Chucky, and we, we went with it. Um, and then, you know, by 2010, I, I, I was like, I need a change. I burnt out almost already. Yeah. And made the choice to go back to Europe. And I think that was the best choice. I, I then joined Doug. We made some changes. And it took a year or so. And in 2010, my now husband, David, started caddying for me. And we went on an adventure to Europe for three years. And we grounded out. I played well. I won. Had many top 10 finishes. And kind of just rebuilt it up. And, um, you know, then unfortunately, you go through injuries too in this game. 2013, yeah. I had hip surgery. That put me out. But it was also, you can look at it as... Um, out or blessing in disguise I think I was ready for a break in a way it was a way of my body telling me you need to regroup again and you know I came back stronger and better I went to Q school at the end of the year got my card and I've had it ever since so um, you know it's ebbs and flows and I feel really in the last four years although now I'm 31 I actually finally feel I'm in the peak of my career I really feel like I've finally found my feet, especially in America, and I feel comfortable. And each week I tee it up, I know I can compete. And when I play really well, one of those weeks, I have a chance of winning. And, you know, you mentioned this, you're going back to LET and kind of just finding your feet again. Can you maybe, for for the listeners, you know, there's this constant, um, the way they phrase it, like, you know, PGA and LPGA are the top, top tier. So what are some of the, the fundamental differences that you find as a player when competing um, in Europe versus LPGA? Because like I mentioned, there's, there's, there's this perception that, you know, once if you're on the LPGA, you at your top level. Can you maybe explain why that is, you know, what people say? Well, they say it's the top level because it's the tour that you play for the most money and it's where all the best ranked in the player, ranked players in the world are. So, you know, it's always going to be monitored and, yeah. and judged like that. The time I was playing in Europe, the tour was so strong. We had 25-odd tournaments a year. What was great for me is, you know, I'd, wanted, I'd like top status, win a status. I could play in the majors in Europe. Um, and I was making a living. And what was even cooler is you're on the same time change as South Africa. I went home every four to six weeks. Life was good. You know, um, and I think what I what I know now about playing in Europe and what I think was so good for me is it teaches you to travel, you know, your different country every week. We were going to like some random places like in like Slovakia in the middle of nowhere where it's literally the golf course and where you're staying and that's where everything happens for the week. But we had such good experiences and we have such good stories to tell today and it it builds character. You're not living a five-star lifestyle, not yeah. that we do today, but, you know, it teaches you grit and grind and makes you appreciate it. And it also teaches you to play different golf. You know, once you get to the States, it's pretty much the same every week. It's drop and stop. you got to carry the ball. I mean, the conditions we had to play in Europe are brutal some weeks. Yeah. But um, it teaches you a lot about how to play different shots. And I think it's a great stepping stone uh, you know very few players go from 
amateur golf straight to the PGA or LPGA. Majority of the guys, especially the South African guys, go Sunshine Tour, European Tour, PGA Tour. And there's nothing wrong. I think it's really important to go through the stepping stones to learn. Um, and it builds. And every year, you know, okay, I've achieved this. What do I need to do better to get to the next step? And the next step. And then eventually you, you hopefully get to, you know, the top tour, which we all know would be the PGA and the LPGA. And that's actually quite, you know, if you look at the way they've documented Brooks Kepka and his mm -hmm. success. Yeah, I mean, they've... Definitely. He's definitely shown us that, you know, like Challenge Tour, for instance, that would, would have been his kind of starting um, step coming from uh, from college golf. But uh, Challenge Tour, European Tour, and now he's four-time major winner. So it does kind of show that um, playing in Europe, because like you mentioned, the conditions are so different versus America where it's kind of got a bomb it every week. There's and seldom... you're traveling all over the world. Yeah. You know, you're out of your comfort zone. And I think... You know, for us as South African, or for me, we had to. I had to travel from a young age in order to play and have opportunities. And it is very different, difficult for Americans to leave their bubble because they have yeah. everything here. Exactly. So it's very seldom that you know American players go over to play in Europe. They'll rather choose to play mini tours here, and be able to go home every second week. But you know, as South Africans with thick skin, we don't have as many opportunities. We can't play in South Africa for your, you know, very if you really want to make it, you have to travel and you have to, you know, get over overseas and do it. But I know there was uh, Mel Reed is a friend of mine and she's played a lot with Brooks and she said, you know, there was a story with him. He was playing challenge to her and he called his dad and he said, I'm coming home. The weather's terrible, you know, and he's like, okay, so you're in Europe, you're playing golf for a living, but the weather's terrible. And you just want to come home because of that. And he's like, yeah, I don't want to be away from him. His dad was like, suck it up. You know. Got to, and, and just and as well his dad did. We look at him now. Um, you know, so we all go through these these so-called hardships. Yeah. And, you know, with the, the female side of South African golf is quite interesting. The way we've integrated amateur golf and pro golf. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of our amateurs get to play the Sunshine Ladies Tour, even though it's quite a short period of time. Um, you know, you've obviously had your fair share of wins over here in SA. Uh, how, how, you know, that platform Sunshine Ladies Tour is obviously quite a big stepping stone just to get you accustomed to kind of competition golf. So maybe just take us through a bit of how you, you manage to build, you know, you, you come back home and you can build some confidence for the rest of the mm -hmm. season. Cause it's normally, you know, before your main season starts. Yeah. Yeah. I think a, it's so important and it's fantastic that the amateurs are able to play uh, on the sunshine ladies tour i'd say to this day it's a reason why i think i was able to win early as a professional because when i was playing amateur golf then we had four professional events a year um yeah. and back then the let players would come down to play in them so it was almost like a ladies european tour event because they were getting out of the cold and you know i learned a lot playing from them what how it helps you is it makes you realize how you have to raise your game the courses play longer if this is if you want to be a professional golfer this is the steps you have to take to get there so you know it's it's such a learning experience for these girls that are now able to do it um, and play with the pros and the girls that have come from Europe and obviously like myself and the other girls that are playing on the ADT Stacey and Nicole and Lejean, um, Leanne so 
I think it's, I'm so happy that we have the Sunshine Tour back, Lady Sunshine Tour back, so it gives these girls these opportunities. Because I think that's what happens. A lot of girls, you know, play, they get to 18. What do I do? Do I go to college? Do I turn pro? And I know this doesn't sound great, but unfortunately, if you're shooting one or two under par and one in a amateur tournament in South Africa, you go over to Q school, you're not going to get you to a card. You're not going to make a cut. And there's no in-between stepping stone. Yeah. So at least when I was playing, I had something to test myself on. And I was lucky. I mean, lucky or whatever you want to call it. A blessed with talent that I won, you know, a tournament just about every year against those pros. <laughs> and um, Which made me believe that I was capable of doing that. But at least, you know, it gives these girls more of a realistic vision of this is what it really takes to win and be at the next level. And, you know, you mentioned this, you know, the what you've just said, you know, how tough it is to kind of make it as a pro. You know, you could have, you could be winning amateur tournaments, you know, every third week or so. But once you try and make that step, it's quite difficult. Like, in all honesty, if you look at a lot of our amateur players, even on the men's side, um, they're number one in the country, but they, you know, trying to get on the sunshine tour is difficult. Um you you had a chat last year, you know, late last year with the Golf RSA women's squad and you kind of, you know, shared a bit of wisdom as well. How important is it for our current, you know, stars to kind of help the younger players, you know, kind of be that guide that maybe some of you guys didn't have when you guys were on the, the up and coming um, to kind of just also talk about a bit of the reality, you know, of being a pro because there's this fairy tale attached yeah. to being a pro golfer that not many of us are accustomed to knowing the actual truth behind it um so how important is it for you know our amateurs to you know hear from our star players well i think it's really important um and i, and I was very grateful that golf rsa reached out to me because we only ever see once you get to the top that's what's only do yeah you know documented on tv and in magazines like oh well he's made it and often also it's about the guys so yeah they are traveling around in their private jets but they very seldom really say what it took to get there you know and i think you know the transition from amateur golf to professional golf the biggest difference is learning to play you know four five six weeks in a row you don't do that in amateur golf you play one week have a few weeks off go home have your home comforts, mom cooks you dinner, laundry gets done, you know, uh, go to your next tournament, parents book your flights. So I think the one thing that I did speak about and, you know, is a lot of those youngsters is try start doing and taking responsibility from a young age. You know, sure, you're young, so your parents need to do it, but we said sit in on it, see how they book the hotel, book the flights, take responsibility. It sounds so stupid, but do your laundry. <laughs> and yes, you know, we're we're lucky living in South Africa. A lot of stuff gets done for us. Yeah. Um, it's just the the life we're accustomed to. Because once you get on the road, it's you. And you're out there for six, seven weeks and you've got to grind it and you you know, there's weeks where you're gonna be so down in the dumps, but you know that if you play well next week you can maybe get into the next week's tournament. So there's always that that little something at the end of the tunnel, you know, um, shining and what you're trying to get to. So you got to dig deep and, you know, 
I think it was a very good call that we had and, and managed to hopefully shine some light on what it really takes to to finally reach to the top. Yeah, I think um, we've all had that like space where we just assumed that this was like a luxurious life to be a pro yeah. golfer. And, far you know, from. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, no, you just get like a dozen, you know, maybe five dozen balls a week. And, mm-hmm. oh, you're OK, you're just going to hop on a flight and yeah. you get 10 pairs of shoes. But it's like mm-hmm. so far from that. Yeah. Um, it's such a small percentage that that actually yeah. happens to. And those are the ones that get documented. That's the thing. Yeah. So it's like yeah. that's what we have as the image mm-hmm. of a pro golfer. Yeah. So it's always good to hear kind of the, you know, like you mentioned, not only the ups, but also the downs so that um, our future stars can kind of accustom themselves to that kind of reality as well. Yeah, totally. And we mentioned, you know, kind of uh, getting balls, getting all these, you know, sponsored things with you making that transition from amateur to pro obviously it's not like you were going to struggle to find a sponsor because Mm -hmm. the results spoke for themselves but what advice can you give to young professional or young you know elite amateurs about you know finding sponsors or you know even approaching brands in a way that they can kind of you know get some assistance because it is quite a, a tough thing to to get even um like to get new balls is such a I mean, I've had my experience of getting um, new golf balls for free, whereas before I'd go and buy the secondhand Provies from the guy on the <laughs> yeah. side of the, the golf yeah. course. So yeah. just if you have some advice to, to give to kids on how to approach brands and maybe the best way they can show a bit of, um, you know, a bit of promise to brands so that they can potentially be assisted. Well, I think it's always a case of, you know, social media now makes it, you know, a lot easier for you to be appreciative and post and, you know, when you get in, even when you get in the stuff for free. Um, but it's always a case of, you know, sponsors aren't just going to come knocking. That's what we all yeah. have this image. I mean, I'm the number one player in South Africa and to get sponsors is, I don't even have, you know, <laughs> so it's like, it's difficult. But you always got to ask the question, you can't just take from them. You've got to ask the question, what can I do for you? How can I make your brand better? And that's almost, you know, that's what's difficult. When I was turning pro, I was the flavor of the month. I was the first South African since Sally Little to finally have this opportunity. Um, you know, I was very fortunate. It helped that I was in that position. I'd almost built a brand already. Um, you know, I signed with Nike. I signed with Nedbank. But unfortunately, like I said, I played well, and then I didn't play well, and then I still didn't play well. And then you really know who's going to be there through thick and thin. Yeah. And that's what you need to make sure that when you sign with management or, you know, sponsors are going to come and go. That's just the way life is. But especially management is, do they really have your interests or are they just trying to make a buck off you? Um, and you have to make sure that they're there for you as a person before. Yes, they're obviously trying to make money. It's a business. But they've got to know you as a person and want to support you, not just because you can play golf well. Um, and it's because sometimes it's almost better to go the hard knock and do yeah. it yourself and with personal relationships. If you can, you know, if you, if you have fantastic opportunities and sponsors, go ahead with it. But if you don't, don't sell your soul, stick it out because, you know, it only takes one week in this game and everything can turn around. Um, so, you know, 
that's that's having been through it in 13 years now and I'm doing it by myself and you know yes obviously it would help anybody when sponsors because it takes you know the financial burden in terms of if you're not playing well off you but you know I've had I've been very fortunate to know people that have personally helped me and been there for me so and didn't want to you know it advertised but um I do hope that companies start to get more behind players and especially women's golf and give these girls more opportunities because I think it happens that a lot of the girls don't get to the next step just because they don't have an opportunity and can't afford it not because they can't play golf yeah yeah and I think that's also comes with um you know the stuff that's not really advertised is how expensive this entire journey really is oh geez it's so expensive <laughs> because you yeah. know everyone thinks like okay you're just going to be playing golf tournaments but I mean there's entry <laughs> fees there's traveling there's like there's you mentioned caddies, if you don't there's have entry fees <laughs> there's rental cars every week I mean we worked out like every week on the LPGA you have to be making at least five and five and a half grand to cover your expenses a week that's what it costs to run um and it's just reality but yeah. people don't unfortunately see it and again we don't we don't see all this stuff we only see the glitz and glamour um and once you've made it i mean that's, that's the thing the people that make it they don't even pay for the stuff anymore they get given the cars jets you know, and again, it's the men's game, and there's it's still a very small percentage in the women's game that even get half of what the men get. And obviously, there's been a big shift on the LET. Um, they just announced that schedule yesterday, I think it was. Um, for you, how encouraging is that to see, especially because you've been on LET for such a, a long period of time? You know, now that there's this kind of step forward with sponsors coming on board as well, the money's getting better television as well so you know how is that for you as a as a player oh it's awesome to see um i'm just hoping that being realistic with covid and that that it all still goes ahead you know yeah it looks everything even for our lpgs schedule everything looks great on paper but um unfortunately we all know crossing countries and borders how things can change right now still and that's i think something that the let has to unfortunately deal with more than we do in the lpga we managed to play a lot within the States last year. We lost a lot. Like, all our big tournaments are in Asia. You know, all the tournaments that I'd worked hard to get into, guarantee money, where it didn't play last year. Supposed to go to Asia in April now. We don't we, we don't know if it's going to happen yet, you know. So, I think we've still got some challenges this year with COVID. But hopefully, once it's all done, that that schedule will somehow at least still be around 20 tournaments but the fact that the sponsors are there um, and that they're showing interest is really good and hopefully that that's what they can keep that that tour at because like I said when I was playing it in 2010 through 2013 we were playing 25 26 tournaments a year in it yeah. it was a great place to play and you know you mentioned COVID and this also comes back to the way you were discussing your hip injury Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can also kind of see this as a, some sort of a blessing in disguise in some sense, because um, I would say now is a good time to make changes, especially, you know, you know, you have the time. Have mm -hmm. you made any changes over this period? I mean, I know you've moved from South Africa <laughs> to the States. Yeah. Um, that's Not quite... by choice. <laughs> kind of got stuck, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a big change, though. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Do you think this period has kind of helped you ease into that transition and also help you adapt to this new life? Yeah, I do. Um, you know, it's always a case of do you look at it half, glass half empty or half full. You know, at the beginning of the year, I was I'd played well the year before and I got off to such a good start that I was I was ready for twenty twenty and and COVID hit. For me, it was at the time I was like, oh man, you know, I was so ready. And then with us getting really locked down in South Africa, at some point, I was like. Our schedule was going to start at the end of July, and I was like, I didn't even know if I could get out of South Africa. So, you know, at, point, at some point last year, it was a little scary for me. Um, but we left on a repatriation flight on the 30th of June, and unfortunately haven't been able to get back to South Africa. Uh, flights got cancelled in December. And yes, we could have gone through Qatar and bought new flights, and but the stress of it and... My whole worry was again getting stuck in South Africa. Yeah, and now not being able to come back and not being able to get back. And now with SA now being on the ban list for the US, we can still get in on the visas, but it just it's just a headache. Um, um, you know the whole goal was to get to the states and and was last year to finally have a base. So it's almost just sped the process up. Well, it's taken a little longer, but now it's sped it up. It was going to happen this year, and it was a case of it's a sink or swim. In forty eight hours, found a place to rent, bought a car. Right, we're doing this. <laughs> it was, and I'm not like that. My husband's very much, you know, he'll jump in and do things where I'm the one who's like got to process it. And so for me, it was, uh, I, you know, I was out of my comfort zone, but we've got it done, and it's given us time to settle at least. And maybe it's it is going to be for the best, and I think it's going to make a big difference for me in feeling like I don't have to play so much. I can play two or three weeks, come home for a week, play two or three weeks, come home for a week, and not feel like I have to be on the road for eight weeks to ten weeks at a time. Do you think you know you mentioned finding a base? Can you maybe take us through some of the mm-hmm. things that you've you know now, you know you're trying to make it seem like you're in South Africa, even though you're very far yeah. from home. <laughs> yeah. um, what are some of the changes you've made um, and yeah, so my plan was originally to move last year. COVID impacted that, got stuck here, and it was like a sink or swim situation. Um, like I said, within 48 hours, found a place to rent, bought a car, and <laughs> it was a uh, very out of my comfort zone. Um, luckily, I played well last year, so we were able to do these things. Um, but I think it's it's been a blessing in disguise and it wasn't easy not going home and being home for Christmas and that was the first for both of us and not being able to see our families. But, you know, it's given us time to settle in and enjoy being in one place for a while and, and trying to make this feel as much like home as possible. Um, we enjoy the area we're in. Uh, it's Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. There's quite a few LPGA girls here, but literally all the South African guys live in the area. Um, and then we kind of ended up here mainly because we'd stayed with a, a host family at a tournament in New York about seven years ago. And they've got a second home down here. And we'd been staying with them while we were trying to find somewhere used it as a base. So we just liked the area and ended up staying. You know, some of the things that are key to a golfer's kind of success is, like you mentioned, finding a base and being comfortable in one spot. Um, how has it been? Because I would say, I'd like to say, you know, South Africans, when we have a home golf course and we have our people around us, we're very comfortable with our 
you know they're like family almost how has it been for you adapting you know getting a new home course you know a new home course um yeah <laughs> and it wasn't you know, easy just, and being you know do you feel welcomed in a sense or do you think you still have to kind of get like get that that um like a green card <laughs> yeah look we're always going to be an outsider here um and especially i think for me is obviously being well known in the south african golf industry uh it sounds weird but i could go anywhere back home and anybody would know me i could play anywhere i didn't have any issues you know um I practice at Serengeti, but my home course on a member at Royal Joburg in Kensington, you know, it is another family to me. You've known the staff. I've grown up there almost. So coming in and A, trying to find somewhere, this is the golfing mecca of of America, um, especially for professionals. There's so many people down here that if they had to give away membership to everybody down here, nobody would make money. So you got to pay wherever you go. And unfortunately you know, where we are, it's kind of catered more to PGA prices <laughs> than LPGA or Corn Ferry prices. So, I mean, it's expensive. Like, yes, we're, we're grateful we can live in a nice area, but the courses around me is Bear Clubs, Trump, Jupiter, Medalist. You know, it's it's the big echelon. And I mean, we don't have that amount of cash just to spend 20 grand a year on a membership. And that's just before you even join. That's just the, the, the yearly fees. <laughs> Never mind what they ask you to pay when you join these golf clubs. So, yeah, it was a little difficult. Also, with COVID, so many more people have come down to Florida from the north and have stayed down here that golf courses are so busy that they're not accepting people either. So, anyway, we've managed to find a golf course. It's called Hope Sound. It's about 30 minutes from where we're living. Um it was redone two years ago by Tom Fazio and there's quite a few corn fairy players that practice out there and they do a good deal for, for pros and try and make it a little easier for you. So, you know, it's a bit of a drive for me to practice every day, but at least now I have somewhere to practice. Um, what's cool about it is there's a no tea time policy. Of course, it's pretty quiet. It's kind of busy between 8.30 and 10 every morning, but after that is you can go play whenever you want. And then it's also you're trying to you're trying to recreate what you had at home in South Africa. You know, I had a great setup. I had dug at Serengeti. Um, I had a one-stop shop there. I could go practice. I could train. Unfortunately, you don't quite have that here, but I've met a personal trainer who's specific, golf-specific, trains a lot of the LPGA girls and some of the guys, so I started working with him. So it's baby steps um, that I'm trying to recreate that environment, but it's going to take some time, and I definitely... I feel like an outsider, especially when I go to the golf course. It's not as comfortable as I am when I'm back in South Africa. And what what would you say is, you know, the I don't want to kind of tr- get you to prioritize what's the most important part of like um, your, comf- you know, being comfortable. But would you say that um, finding a good a golf course that is kind of welcoming in a sense, is that like one of the key aspects to to you know, enjoying your time there because mm. you spend most of your time there. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. And that's what drew us to the, you know, Hope Sound is we went there, we visited, they helped me out straight away. Oh, welcome. We're so, we'd be happy to have you. Um, You know, they waive the joining fee. You pay a fee for the year, which is fine, but it includes unlimited golf, practice facilities, um, 
the practice facilities are more than good enough for what we need. Yeah, they're not as good as, you know, a lot of these other places. But, you know, it's grass, it's a driving range, great putting green, nice chipping green. That's all I need. Yeah. I don't need fancy stuff. I just need to be able to hit balls, work on my game. Um, and the staff have been have been nice and accommodating, which which did make the decision easier. You know, there was another course I was hoping to join where a few other girls play, but again, it has to go to the committee and, you know, all the stuff. And with COVID, there's, it's just so much going on at the moment here, down here in Florida. So, you know, I had to get things done quicker than late, sooner than later. So we just did it. And, um, you know, you mentioned you needed to get all of this done quite quickly. You, mm. you know, getting back in action in, I think you said following week. Um, yep. 10 days. So, what you know what do you do in preparation for that now i know you took some time off so how have you kind of been getting back into the groove can you maybe i know we kind of stretching time here but can you maybe take us through um a quick little practice day with ashley buai yeah so i've been training on with the physically training monday wednesday fridays um and the last three weeks i've been back at practice monday to friday i take weekends off i'll play like on a sunday um, but yeah, I get to the course, do sh- probably stand on the range, hit balls for two hours. I like to like hit 50 balls, go hit some putts, hit 50 balls, go hit some chips, just so it doesn't get, you know, a bit too like stale in that. But it's also been an adjustment for me because this is normally the most time I would have with Doug is always the beginning of the year. And also when I've had time off. You're a little rusty and I prefer, you know, I like to be able to build up and he's there to reassure me. Yeah, you're not going to hit a grade in three days. What do you expect? You've just had four weeks off. And I still think that in two days I should be striping it. <laughs> so it's also been a little bit different for me not having him here to work with for four weeks and doing everything over video. But I think I've adjusted pretty well and got myself to where I want to be next week where he's coming in and then we can touch things up. Um like I had a call with him last week and he's like, so you got your grumpy socks on? I said, yes, I'm not striping it yet. <laughs> and he's like, well, you're trying to do too much. Just do this, do a little bit and then do that a little bit better the next day. That's why he's so good. He just knows me so well and uh, just do something better, a little better every day and it'll build up to next week. And then hopefully by the time I tear it up in 10 days time, we're ready to go. And, um, you know, to close off on, we've, you know, kind of touched on giving advice to younger golfers, you know, is there any other small nuggets of advice you can give to up and coming golfers that, you know, can help them transition better into tour life? Mm-hmm. Well, you, you got to want to do this because you want to do it. You got to have a passion for it. Um, and you've got to want to grind it and stick it out in the good and the bad times. Um, and also, you know, I, I had opportunity I've had opportunity to meet a lot of, you know, professional athletes from all sports and Zinzan Brook, the all black, said to me once, gave me the advice that I take with me is enjoy the journey. Um and that's something that, that sticks with me to this day. You know, you gotta enjoy what you're doing and it's not always gonna be fun, but enjoy the process and because, you know, when you have that win or that great week and or good year it makes all that grinding worth it. And with that, thanks, Ash. Um, appreciate you taking the time. I know we probably won't be seeing you this year in South Africa. You know, COVID is definitely yeah, playing its part. Unfortunately, I don't think it's going to happen, which yeah. uh, really sucks. <laughs> but we'll we'll be cheering f- um, for you from the side of, of town. 
Thank you. I really appreciate it.